It is my prayer this morning that, and this is always the case, but it is my prayer this morning that the Spirit would go with us for certainly we, I, do not have the ability to even scratch the paint on Romans chapter 11 in one go. But as we endeavor here not to lose the forest for the trees or the trees for the bark, we will continue with our overview as we get ready to close out this study in the book of Romans. This morning, Jew and Gentile consigned together unto salvation, Romans chapter 11, verses 1 through 36. But before we start, as has been our habit here over the last couple of months, we are going to go back and look at the gospel that Paul is proclaiming to the church in Rome. And Paul begins by saying that he is not ashamed, but instead is eagerly obligated to the gospel, a gospel that is nothing less than the power of God unto salvation the wrath of God revealed against men and the righteousness of God revealed to us in making and quite frankly revealed to us in shutting the mouth of angels. When he makes propitiation for his people, ransoming them back to himself, purchasing our lives with nothing less than the lifeblood of his own son so that he who is just may be the justified. For he looked over former sin. A gospel that was now revealed was once hidden but still functioning. And Abraham believed God and yet his belief was reckoned to him as being so much more than it was. Was reckoned to him as righteousness. The very power of God on display. Faith being credited for something greater than it was. And having been justified through the gift of faith. We, along with our father in the faith, Abraham, rejoice. Literally, we boast in the hope of God. For we were dead. Born in the image of our father Adam from dust and to dust. And yet in Christ we live because in Christ we die. We know our identity. We are those who by the baptism of the Spirit have died with Christ, have been buried with Christ, and are risen with Christ by the glory of the Father to walk in the newness of life. A profound identity it is. Life from death. The God of creation calling into existence that which did not previously exist. All of this by the power of the Holy Spirit, not by the power of men. Men are enslaved to their own being. Romans chapter 8, verse 8, Paul says, Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you, if you are in Christ, have a new being. You're a new creation. In the very next breath, Paul says in verse 9, that you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, the regenerative agent of the salvation of the cross of Jesus Christ is nothing less than the indwelling of the Spirit of Christ Himself. Friends, 
You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, not because you repeated a prayer, not because you were baptized at a particular time or in a particular place, but you are indeed not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if the Spirit of God dwells in you. Man, you want to know whether or not you're born again? Does the Spirit dwell in you? This is how you know. And if it's true, then the most audacious of all statements that has ever been made to human beings is true for you, just like it's true for me. All things work together for your good. For Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, by this very spirit that indwells him and us, that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. You may be sitting here today asking yourself, am I called? Can, am, I, am I called according to His purpose? Can I, do, do I have the prerequisite to be able to hang on to this promise that says that all things are working together for my good? My question to you, friend, if you want to know what the proof test is, do you love Him? Because the only way you love him is if he has called you according to his purpose. Not do you love the things he gives you. Not do you love the idea of heaven as opposed to hell. Of seeing loved ones that have gone before as opposed to not seeing them. Not even if you love the reality that all things work for good. But do you love the one who causes all things to work for good. And if you love him for him, not for his stuff, but for him, then friend, that is the evidence that you are called. And let me assure you, though trial, tribulation, and travail come, you will never have a bad day. See, we are called not just to any old purpose. We are called according to the purpose of God. Salvation belongs to our Lord. In Romans chapter 9, verse 16, Paul says, So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. The reality is, is our God, our Creator, and our Savior is absolutely, positively free. He is the only free being in all of existence. He sits in the heavens and he does whatever he will. He has mercy on whom he will have mercy. He hardens whomever he will harden. And men in their rebellion will stand up and say, is there injustice then on God's part? And Paul replies by saying, not heaven forbid, but not being. It's a fallacious question. It is apart from the nature of God's existence. For all his ways are justice, the word says. God's ways and what he does in hardening and in mercy become the very definition of what justice is. And in that, we can rejoice, we can boast. In the hope of God, 
For the good news of the gospel is that mercy and compassion are not opposed to God's justice, but mercy and compassion are part and partial to God's justice to the extent that we can say definitively out of Scripture that if there is no mercy and there is no compassion, it is not the justice of God. For he is merciful. And he is compassionate. Oh, our God will not be accused. Not being. Instead, he will be glorified. He will be glorified for his wrath as it comes against sin. He will be glorified for his mercy in the grace of the blood of Jesus Christ. Concerning the glory of God and salvation, Paul's heart breaks. His heart breaks for the lost. Those who lacking the intimacy of salvation instead would intend to establish a system for themselves, something that they could call law. And yet it is insufficient for the glory of God is not in man's law. God's glory instead is displayed in the word of faith. A word that is, man, you got to hear me today, a word that is near you, that is in your heart and in your mouth. For if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And it begs the question, what must we believe and what must we confess? That Jesus is God? Absolutely not. You can confess that. It's a true statement. It's not sufficient unto salvation. The demons will confess such a thing. We confess instead that Jesus Christ is Lord. That His is the might. That His is the power. That He is the sovereign. That He is our Master. For everyone who calls on the name not of God but on everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And knowing that salvation is from the Lord and not from the arguments of men, we are bold in evangelism. We understand the difference. You don't have to understand this to be born again. But as your sanctification progresses, you should begin to understand this. We understand the difference between the means and the cause. They're not the same thing. We understand the difference between the means and the cause. We understand that we are the means speaking the gospel to people who have never heard it. But we also understand that it is Christ that is the cause. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. I got to tell you guys, I don't understand why men want to bicker about the fact that they don't get to have as much part in the cause as they would like. I'm just thrilled 
that he would see fit to let us be the means. To let us be those that have beautiful feet because they come in a timely manner so that people may hear and that hearing the Holy Spirit may work upon them to produce a new creation. How beautiful are the feet of those that preach the good news. Will all believe? No. Man, I wish they would. Don't you? I wish they would. But will all believe? No, they will not. Faith comes through hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Oh man, I can whisper, I can holler. But regardless of which one I do, it is not sufficient for your salvation. Christ, I can show you places where he whispers, and I can show you places where he hollers. I can show you places where he splits the sky. But regardless of how he comes, when men hear his call and his voice, they are saved. For us, success is not necessarily people accepting the good news of Christ, even though that would certainly be our preference. Success is defined by the faithful proclamation of the good news of the gospel. We'll leave the effect up to God. So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Now guys, that's ten chapters in as tight of a nutshell as I can pack it in and be faithful to what Paul says. There's some high doctrine in there. And there's stuff we didn't even touch on in that little overview, man. There's, you know... We just hinted at this whole idea of being shepherded into death and the faith of Abraham. There's some high doctrine in there. And I would have you note that as high and as precise and quite frankly demanding, I mean, look, guys, people either love Romans or they hate it. And the reason they either love it or they hate it is because it is so precise of a book that if you take it for what it says, it paints your doctrine into a corner and doesn't leave you room to wiggle. And yet, in light of this high and heavy doctrine, the effect on Paul's heart is profound. Understanding God's free and sovereign election does not stifle the apostle's heart. It doesn't make him stoic. It doesn't make him fatalistic. It doesn't make him indifferent to the plight of the lost. Instead of stifling the apostle's heart, this high doctrine inflames the apostle's heart. Because in it is assurance that salvation is indeed at hand. Because this God is a God who indeed has mercy. Once you 
see the fullness of the depravity of man. And you understand the thing, when, when that moment, when the light bulb comes on, when, when you've read it literally a thousand times your whole life, and then you realize that when Scripture says men are dead in their sin, it actually means they're dead and not just sick. When you understand the depth to which men fell, that they fell all the way in to the grave. This doctrine doesn't stifle the heart. It assures it. For the only hope of the heart is that there is a God who is good. And in His goodness, without any merit of our own, speaks life into the midst of death. Which is exactly where we see the heart of Paul longing at the beginning of Romans chapter 11 in verses 1 through 6. So for context, in chapter 10 verse 21, but of Israel he says, Paul's very own people, his brothers and sisters according to the flesh, but of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. You see the heart of God. He's not indifferent. He's not fatalistic. Even though he's the one that is speaking their destiny, we see his heart and going, man, I'm here. Won't you come? we see that heart reflected in the new creation in Paul. He has a heart that is being sanctified, that is being molded after the heart of his Savior. I ask then, has God rejected his people? Not being. I know it says by no means, but if you've been tracking with us this far, you know that's not what it means in the Greek. Not being, that's not his, that's not his character. That's not who he is. I ask then, has God rejected his people not being? For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Paul says, man, has he rejected his people? Absolutely not. It is contrary to his character. Paul cites himself as an example. A man who was absolutely opposed to everything of the cross and was pursuing the destruction of the kingdom of God as hard as he could go underneath a system that had developed by men like himself and was employed by himself that he called law when the sky split open and Jesus Christ said, not today. Salvation belongs to the Lord. 
comes by grace, not by works. The perspective of men is limited. We look around with the diminished faculties we have, looking as though through a mirror darkly, Scripture says. We look around and we observe and we analyze. And we believe we understand. Apart from the Spirit, we do not. And so here you have a great man of God recalling the perspective of another great man of God. And he's reminding and preaching to himself in doing so. And he calls back to Elisha in the events of 1 Kings chapter 19. The narrative runs from verse 1 through 18. And guys, I looked at this and you know, we're just going to look at a couple of big sections today because there's just no way to chop it up. And in 1 Kings chapter 19 and verse 1, it says that Ahab told Jezebel, she was aptly named, all that Elijah had done. And what was all that Elijah had done? What all that Elijah had done was being zealous for the name of the Lord his God. And how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. As a matter of fact, in chapter 18, it says he hacked them to pieces. Jezebel sent a messenger to Elisha saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. And then he was afraid and he arose and ran for his life. And came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. He left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die. (laughs) You got to love that. Not willing to kill himself, but Lord, if you would just end me, that would be great. (laughs) He asked that he might die. He said, it is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. He lay down and slept under the broom tree, and behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water, and he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came to him a second time and touched him, And guys, the miracle here is not the fact that there was out of nothing calling into existence what did not exist. The miracle is not, the the, the crux of the biscuit here is not the fact that there was a biscuit where there hadn't been one. It's not the fact that there's a cake cooked on hot stones where there wouldn't been one. It's not that there's a jar of water out here in the middle of the wilderness. It is this. The angel of the Lord came to him a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. 
what the Lord is going to demand of him is more than can be done. You can't give 110%, and it wouldn't matter if he could have. 500% wouldn't do what he is demanded by God to do. And so what the Lord's going to do, hey man, faith comes through hearing, and hearing comes through the word of Christ. What's going to happen with him is more than him. He arose, he ate, and he drank. And he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God, on one cake of of meal and a jar of water. The dude over the course of 40 days went from Judea into what is the heart of modern Saudi Arabia. One of the most desolate places on the face of the planet. And the Lord provided for him the entire time. There he came to a cave and he lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. He had a flair for the dramatic. And here's the thing. No doubt. No doubt. Elisha feels that to the bone. I mean, good grief, the guy hasn't eaten in 39 days. He literally has the entirety of the government pursuing him. Not to mention the realities of this present darkness. But what Elisha sees in his limited perspective. Through a mirror darkly, God does not have agreement with. And even though what he feels is a legitimate emotion and a legitimate feeling, the Lord refuses to validate it. He said, go and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after an earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, He wrapped his face in his cloak and he went out and he stood at the entrance of the cave and behold, there came a voice to him and said the exact same thing it said before. Before the wind that split the rock, before the fire, before the earthquake. What are you doing here, Elijah? 
And he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, go and return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elijah, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be a prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elijah put to death. And yet I will leave seven thousand in Israel all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him now look you would think if anybody's qualified to give an opinion it would be Elisha the guy just went for 40 days from Judea all the way into Saudi Arabia. And if you have that idea in your mind about Arabian Nights, you know, it's like at the beginning of Aladdin where, you know, Robin Williams is doing his thing and there's the camel walking over one dune after the other, after the other, after the other. This is the place that, that's where that image comes from. No water. 120 degrees during the day, 40 degrees at night. This dude just walked all the way out there to be asked the question, what are you doing here? Twice. And then to be told, after he gave a very, very heartfelt lament, you just don't know what you're talking about. So what I'm going to need you to do is go back. Just truck her right back over there. You're going to anoint some guys. By the way, your ministry's done. Your replacement, you're going to be caught up, man. We've got stuff waiting for you, but you're going to have to wait till the revelation to get there. By the way, there's 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And so, Paul speaks about a remnant. A remnant that is saved by grace. In Romans chapter 11 and verse 7, he says, What then? And here he is, he's like Elijah, his heart's breaking for his people because he's just not hardly seeing any of them be saved, but he knows the testimony that God gave to Elijah, that there is more to the grace of God than what you see. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Because this is the God who is free. And he has mercy on whom he wills. And he hardens whom he wills. And so, 
Paul considers the hardening of Israel. And he considers a remnant that he knows exists, even though he doesn't know how big it is, and he knows it exists because he himself is an example thereof. But is it only a remnant? I mean, is this, is this the glory of God on display that, that he would take Israel, his chosen people, that he carved out from well before Egypt, well before Abraham, even all the way back to the tents of Shem? Would he take this people that he promised so much to and be satisfied with his glory being displayed in only a remnant? In only the 7,000 or those that are related thereto? God is always doing more than what we see. He's always doing more than what we see. Only a remnant? No. There is something much, much bigger at hand. And, it's, and the thing that's bigger is not just the fact that one of those that is the remnant saved by grace happens to be writing the greatest theological book ever written. That would be enough. But it's more than that. In hardening Israel, God is bringing salvation to billions. In Romans chapter 11, verse 11 through 12, he says, So I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall not being? Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Paul says that there is much more going on here than, Paul, than God simply saving a remnant out of Israel. But instead, in the hardening of Israel, has come the opportunity for the salvation of Gentile dogs. And that should be the point where you get real happy because that means you and me. You say, man, why would God harden His people? How is it that God would be just in hardening His people? Listen, you need to be quiet. lest you argue against the very means by which salvation is coming to me and you. There's a day coming for them. And it is not divorced from us. No more than the salvation of our day is divorced from them. There's a day coming for them. And Paul puts it this way. He says, look, you got one nation over here in Israel, a nation that when God called them out, and we're going to look at that here in a minute, when he called them out, he said, listen, I want you to understand why I'm calling you out and why I'm not calling you out. Okay? The, the reason I'm not calling you out is because you are bigger, better, or more impressive than any other people on the face of the planet. As the matter of fact, you're the smallest and least impressive of all the people on the planet. I'm calling you out because I loved you and I swore to your forefathers that out of that love I would act accordingly and so I'm faithful to my own promise. And so here you've got this nation who is literally a tiny little nation. 
The thing that makes Israel so significant in human history is not their size or their prowess. Now, they're pretty potent, no doubt. You blow them up to 300 million people the size of the United States and no telling what they could get done because it's amazing what they can do with just the handful of people they got. But the fact of the matter is, is what makes Israel so significant historically is not their own ability. It's the blessing of God upon them. They're tiny. You can pack Israel into Arkansas multiple times over. He said it's not because you were bigger. It's not because you were better. It's not because you were more impressive. Now, having promised you this thing, there is a hardening that has come for a season upon the majority of them so that only a remnant remains. And yet because of that hardening of this tiny little nation, God is blessing and saving men across the entire world of every tribe, language, and nation. So, Paul says, if-then statement. If they're so important in the plan of God that they're hardening means that salvation comes to the world, then uh, what happens when he shows them compassion and grace? If hardening them produces blessing for mankind, then what does it mean when he shows them his glory in salvation? And what it means is nothing less than life from the dead. In Romans chapter 11, verse 13 through 16, he says, Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. That's me and you. We need to listen. Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Now I would have you note that he is not talking about spiritual new birth. He's already been talking about that. With that as the context, this new statement literally means get out the grave. The dead in Christ will rise. Their reconciliation, their salvation will come at the moment when in the twinkling of an eye, the dead in Christ shall live. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. What we see God doing with this remnant is more than just the remnant. For salvation... The means of salvation is not simply the feet of those that bear good news. The means of salvation is that plus some. For salvation comes specifically to men 
through the means of the Jews. Jesus says it this way in the Gospel of John in chapter 4. And once again, guys, there's just no way to chop this stuff up. So in in John chapter 4, in verse 1, we'll just let the Scripture speak for itself here. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John... Although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. Okay, he did not have to pass through Samaria as a geographical reality. As a matter of fact, as a geographical reality, he had to go completely out of his way to pass through Samaria. He had to pass where he was going, and loop back. He had to pass through Samaria because of the purpose of his father. He had to pass through Samaria. And so he came to a town of Samaria called Sachar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there, and so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. And a woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. But the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealing with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here and draw water. Man, I wonder if I sound that foolish to the Lord when I'm (laughs) reading his stuff. (laughs) Yeah, it'd be great. Can I get some of that so I don't have to come, you know, and get rope burns on my hands anymore? Come on, man. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband. For you have five, you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Oh, yeah. Jesus puts his finger on you. Let's Let's try to bring sound doctrine into question. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Salvation is from the Jews. 
Salvation is not of the Jews. Salvation is of Christ. The gospel that is proclaimed, that makes the feet of those who timely come beautiful, is not of the one proclaiming. It is of Christ. But it is from the one proclaiming. Salvation is from the Jews. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called the Christ, when He comes, He will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, He who speaks to you, I am. Not... As it is translated in the ESV, I who speak to you am he. This is the ego ime. This is the statement of his deity. He who speaks to you, I am. I am the Messiah. I am the Christ. I am the one who is telling you the manner in which you will worship in spirit and truth. And I want you to know that salvation is not from the Samaritans. It's from the Jews. We abuse Israel today. So often in the church today, we fall into one of two extremes of of the doctrine of the people of God in national Israel. We either treat them like a lucky rabbit's foot. If we buy Israeli war bonds, then our 401k will do well. Or we look at them as they are indifferent and having been replaced by a Gentile church when nothing could be further from the truth, but instead it is through them and the salvation that was promised to them in which we have been grafted. There is so much more, even in the midst of Paul's heart breaking. Hey man, listen, the, the gospel will put you in a place where you, have, where you have emotions that seem to be contrary to each other. At the same time, his heart breaks over the fact that his people have been hardened and there's only a remnant and the majority are lost and yet he celebrates the very fact that because they are, that means just millions and millions and millions of Gentiles are being saved. Buddy, you don't want to be in that position. I don't want to be in that position. We leave that to God. I couldn't make that call. But all of His ways are justice. And so He hardens whom He wills. And He has compassion on whom He wills. And friends, I celebrate it. Because in hardening them, He had compassion on me. You say, man, that sounds awful self-centered, dude. I can't help it. I can't help it. I boast in the hope of Christ that he gave me. There's more here than a remnant. Salvation is from the Jews. They are being hardened specifically so that blessing may come to the world. God hardened his people in order that he might have mercy on Gentiles like me and you. And so he says in Romans chapter 11 and verse 17, if some of the branches were broken off, it's those whom he hardened. If some of the branches were broken off 
And you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. Friends, you were grafted in. I was grafted in. We were grafted into a salvation that was never made as a corporate promise to our people. Now look, we were foreknown. Paul says it straight up. We were foreknown. That means intimate with beforehand, not head knowledge. This is heart knowledge. We were foreknown. We were predestined. We were called. We were justified. We're being sanctified and we will be glorified. And all of that is absolute in the sovereignty of God. It is going to happen, man. If you were foreknown, you will be glorified. And in the midst of that, you will repent. You will believe. You will walk in the gift of faith. You'll do all of the things that are required of the people of God. But the fact of the matter is, is we are those who are grafted in. There were branches that were broken off so that the heart of God may be fulfilled in your salvation and mine so that you can be a branch, a wild olive shoot, grafted in to a tamed olive tree. So don't be an arrogant branch. Because, buddy, it's not me and it's not you that supports the root. It's the root that supports us. Life flows from it to us through a promise made in such a way that salvation comes from the Jew. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, well, branches were broken off so that I may be grafted in. I must be special. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. Oh man, God never broke off anyone that believed. They were broken off for their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. Because as we know, that faith is not your own, but the very gift of God to you. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what by nature, a wild olive tree, and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these natural branches be grafted back in to their own olive tree? This is, the, this is not in the notes, and, and I think it is just pastoral advice here, opinion. Um, and it's one of the reasons that we do things with individual missionaries the way that we have done them at Mount Zion. Guys, i, I got to tell you, I think when it comes to um, our cooperative mission efforts, we should be spending a disproportionately large amount of resources on evangelizing the Jew. 
Because we're not talking about cause here, we're talking about means. But that's as far as we can go, and it's what we're required to do. And the fact of the matter is, as far as the means go, we need to make real sure that the vine into which we are grafted does not die. It won't. Oh man, God's purpose isn't going to fail. It always succeeds. And yet, just like we looked at with Paul, the knowledge of that fact does not make us complacent. Doesn't make us stoic. Doesn't make us fatalistic. As a matter of fact, the knowledge that it won't fail should make us bold in going about the things that he has given us to function as the means because the thing we are driven by is not pragmatism, but a burning heart. Because let me tell you, if you want to apply pragmatism to what God says about his own sovereignty, then what it would do is make you lazy and indifferent. But that's not what drives his people. People are driven by the heart that loves the gospel and loves the kingdom for the sake of the gospel and the kingdom. When God hardened his people in order that the Gentiles might be grafted in, when he broke off branches of the natural olive tree that you, a wild shoot, may be grafted in. He did not do so because of my inherent value or because of your inherent value. He did so because of his own inherent value. He grafted you in for a purpose. And the purpose is his and his alone. The promise belongs to Israel. And it has come to us through them. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, I told you we'd get here. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6 through 11, the Lord says it this way. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God, literally other than. You've been set apart. He's talking to national Israel here. Now this promise is ours, but it's ours through the engrafting into them. Okay, so it was not ours primarily. It has become ours. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. And the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all of the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. I love the way he phrases that. He doesn't say, know therefore that that God is your Lord. Man, the defining nature of this relationship The fact that he is God is what enables it and empowers it. But the defining nature of the relationship is that he is Lord. Friends, he's God of the demons. But they don't recognize him as Lord. 
Know therefore that the Lord, your master, is God and nothing less. Man, that'll get you froggy right there real quick. Make you just, make you do crazy stuff. Like eat one little cake off a hot rock and drink a jar of water and go 40 days into the desert. Just to have the question asked, what are you doing here? So you can turn around and go 40 days back. And just get your clock cleaned while you're at it. <laughs> I'm out here by my team. There ain't nobody else left. Get back. I'm reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandment to a thousand generations. Repays to their face those who hate Him by destroying them. He will not be slack with the one who hates Him. He will repay Him to His face You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. This is the promise to Israel. As Paul paraphrases the concept in Romans chapter 9, they are the Israelites and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Salvation is from the Jews. And yet he hardens them so that you may be grafted in and that you may be grafted in according to his purpose. And guys, it's a big deal. Branches were of these people were broken off so that you and I could receive the nourishing sap from the root. We're not trophy children. Man, the church has got that messed up today. We're not trophy children. Church, uh, by and large, all too often we think we are. That's why when you find yourself in the Revelation, people just can't wrap their heads around the doctrine that is right in front of their face. Do you think that the Lord would really ask His people to suffer in such a way? Yes, He required it of His only begotten Son. What makes you think He wouldn't require it of me and you? We're not trophies. Man, He he broke off natural branches to graft me and you in. That didn't come cheap. He did it for good reason and good purpose. He expects the outcome of His grace. What was His purpose? His purpose was absolutely genius. That by breaking them off and grafting us in, not only would He save us, but He would provoke that which was not the remnant to jealousy in such a way that the entirety of Israel would be saved. Phenomenal.
In chapter 11 and verse 25 of the book of Romans, Paul says, lest you be wise in your own sight. Lest you get to be in an arrogant branch, thinking it's all about you. It wasn't about you. Here's the crazy thing. It was about them. And being about them, it saves you. And saving you, you save them and them and you and you and them and back and forth and back and forth until the glory of God is on the fullness of display for all to see. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers, that a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way... All Israel will be saved, as it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion and he will banish ungodliness from Jacob and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. This is what Paul is trying to provoke in chapter 11 out of you and me. Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I'm an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. There's a day that is coming when all Israel will be saved, where every living son and daughter of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will be in a moment born again. And the means that the Lord will use to do that is the faithfulness of the Gentile church. When the Jews are provoked to jealousy, when they see on display what was originally promised to them coming to someone else, it's spoken of most clearly by the prophet Zechariah in chapter 12 and verse 10 where it's speaking of the day of the Lord comes at the end of the tribulation. It says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, when he splits, according to Matthew 24, the eastern sky and the sign of the Son of Man is seen in the heavens and he gathers his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. When the dead in Christ rise and in the twinkling of an eye, those of us that are left together are caught up to be with the Lord in the air. When they look on him, whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. Guys, that is brand new for them. They didn't even recognize him until this point. They will mourn, weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. And on that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn, each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, their wives by themselves, the family of the Shimeites by itself, and their wives by themselves, and all the families that are left, each one by itself and their wives by themselves. And on that day, 
There shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and all uncleanliness. And every single arrogant branch that ever said, Is the Lord unjust? And has he forsaken his people? Will have their mouth shut at that moment. When every single one will be saved. When the church of Jesus Christ amongst the Gentiles that has been grafted in because they were hardened does what the church is supposed to do. When they suffer. When they suffer for their Lord. When they prove that they are His people. When what is written in Revelation 13, 5-10 comes to fruition, that the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months, and it opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming His name and His dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And also it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on the earth will worship it, and everyone's name who was not written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. Here it is. Come on, church. Get get on it. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If he is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. That's a hard reality. It sure is. Let me tell you how God feels about it. Here's how He feels about it. Here's a call for the endurance and the faith of the saints. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain which he cannot lose. And that day, after years of the most brutal captivity and suffering that the world will ever know, after years of grafted in Gentile branches being faithful, dying by the droves, and the Jews watching on isolated protection, thinking how silly they are to die for a false Messiah, will in that day see the eastern sky split wide open. They will see the dead in Christ rise. They will see the faithful Gentiles caught up into the air to be with him. And in that moment, they will realize what they have forfeited. Their heart will break. They will mourn because they know it was supposed to be their promise. That's their Messiah. 
Salvation is through them. And in that moment, at the last moment, the Lord will blow open a fountain for them of grace and pleas for mercy. And all living Israel will be saved in a moment. And for the first time, for the first time in all of the Gentile church's existence, the vine in which to we are engrafted will be made whole. I don't know what that's going to be like. Paul even had a hard time grappling with the concept. Which is why he said this. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Man, you talk about a bookend to it, therefore does not depend on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but have now received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom of the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen.